0: Really, Mrs. Ward, not one hundredth of the stories they print about me are true. It's what the publicity man at the studio thinks is good publicity. But I told him this morning I wouldn't stand it any longer. And you're quite right, my dear. I'm just my natural, simple self, with my dogs and my books and my fireside. Hey, Lola!
1: Where are you, baby? They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? they had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce?
0: The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. Multipass. Lee, uh, multi-pass. She uh, you knows it's you Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with
1: Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play
0: the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.
2: Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. I'm Jeff Kelly, and I'll be your host for this week. It's the third Monday of the month, and that means I'm going to watch and talk about a film I hadn't seen before. This time, I'm watching a comedy film, Bombshell, from 1933. The film was directed by Victor Fleming and stars Gene Harlow, Lee Tracy, Frank Morgan, and Frank Atone. But before I get started with that, I thought I'd share a little story about myself that happened just last Friday. Why? Well, because I can. It's my podcast, and I can talk about anything I want. Anyway, now I post these videos on YouTube. They're bios of little-known actor and actresses that have interesting stories. In fact, right now I'm working on one that Nancy Fry is helping me with. Anyway, these take a long time to do. i spend a lot of hours researching this person, trying to find newspaper articles. and It takes me, literally, sometimes six months to put one of these together couple of years ago, I did one of an actor named Jean Rogers. Now, Jean's real name was Eleanor Lovegrin, and she was sort of accidentally discovered, but ended up having a pretty good career. She started out in a bunch of serials. She was the first Dale Arden in the Flash Gordon serials in the mid-1930s. Now, when I write these stories, I don't think about the proper terminology. What I'm saying is, Sometimes I call a female actor a female actor. Sometimes I call them an actress. I think these days, either term can be used, though I think people are starting to lean more towards female actor, and I really don't care. So since I've posted this video of Gene Rogers, almost all of the comments I've received have been really positive. In general, the people on YouTube have been pretty kind to my videos. Until Friday, and I got this comment... At the time, Eleanor would have only wanted to be an actress. And considering her generation, she would have been highly offended at your insult of calling her an actor. I know I am offended. And then he posted a little frowny face. I saw this and I first thought, is he joking with me? Then I went to my YouTube channel and looked and he actually gave me my first thumbs down I've got on this video. You know, like I said, I spent months researching her. I found every detail I could find about her and spent a long time crafting it to a well-told story that's both honest and respectful of the female actor. None of that mattered. None of the information I provided mattered. None of the heartfelt tribute I had towards this person mattered. The fact that I used a more modern term for actress caused him to reject the whole video. I'm like... Okay, I like to think that if Gene Rogers were alive today, she would just appreciate the fact I took the time to do this. I'm wondering if I did a biography of a black actor and I called him an African-American if this person would have a fit. I don't know. Anyway, let's get back to Bombshell. Screenwriter John Lee Mahim said this of the film, Bombshell was an unproduced play about this poor girl who became a big star. Nobody understood her. Everybody used her. She worked all the time. It was tragic. Then, while talking to Victor Fleming, Mahim came up with the idea of turning this drama into a comedy. He asked Fleming if there was anyone they could base the film on, and Fleming said, "'I know one now, Clara Bow. She used to be my girl. "'You'd go to her house, and there'd be this beautiful oriental rug with coffee stains.' and dog crap all over the floor, and her father would be drunk, and her secretary was stealing from her. And that was enough. They had something to base a new movie on. Clara Bow was known as the It Girl. In this film, their actress, Lola Burns, would be known as the If Girl. But, you know, it's going to be hard to talk about the film Bombshell without talking extensively about its star, Jean Harlow, and her short, tragic life. You see, while this film may have been based on Clara Bow, it just could have easily been based on Harlow herself. At the time, she was supporting her domineering mother and her greedy, gold-bricking husband, Marino Bello, who was an Italian con man with gangster connections. With Jean's money, the couple had built a huge mansion. Within it, the furniture alone cost $25,000, and that was in 1930. And keep in mind that both Jean's mother and her boyfriend, neither of them worked. They were living the good life on Harlow's money. Now, by the time Harlow made Bombshell, she was a highly paid actress and had developed great comic timing, along with her sexuality and vulnerability. But the road to get to this point had been a pretty difficult one. Jean Harlow was born Harlene Harlow Carpenter on March 3, 1911, in Kansas City, Missouri, Her mother was actually named Jean Harlow. Now, Mother Harlow dreamed of being a Hollywood actress, but was forced into a marriage to a man she didn't love by her domineering father. At age 32, Mother Harlow, after divorcing her husband, moved to Hollywood with her daughter, who she always referred to as Baby. Although beautiful herself, Mother Harlow's attempt to be an actress failed due to her age. 32 was much too old at that time to start an acting career. So she returned to Kansas City to a I-told-you-so father. Soon, however, Jean and Baby moved to Chicago. She said the purpose was to enroll Harlene at the Ferry Hall School in Lake Forest, Illinois. And she did just that, but the real reason was to be near Marino Bello. Now, long before she was a Hollywood star, Harlene wanted nothing more than to be a wife and mother. And she almost had it. In 1928, at 17, she married 21-year-old Chuck McGraw, an heir to a large fortune. Chuck moved the couple to Los Angeles, primarily to get her away from her mother and her boyfriend. Now, without any need to work, Chuck and Harlene became heavy drinkers, but they also loved to take long walks in the country. Now, Harlene never had any plans to be an actress. The story goes that she drove her friend, Rosalie Roy, to Fox Studios. And while waiting for her friend, she was noticed by Fox executives. They ended up giving her letters of introduction to central casting. But without any desire to be an actor, she stuffed those letters into her pocket. She only went to the audition after she made a wager with Rosalie, who was convinced she didn't have the nerve to go. At the audition, she used her mother's name, Jean Harlow. Soon she began getting offers for extra work, but pretty much ignored them all. But by now, mother had moved to the area to get close to her baby, and her mother insisted that she take the work. So she ended up playing as an unbilled extra in films for $7 a day and a boxed lunch. But even while working as an extra, she began to get noticed. And soon she signed a five-year contract with Hell Road Studios for $100 a week. The whole thing was against her husband Chuck's wishes. He hated the whole idea of her being an actor. She started playing small roles, including parts in three Laurel and Hardy comedy shorts. It was there she began to figure out that maybe comedy was her thing. Her first speaking role was in the film Saturday Night Kid with Clara Bow. But about this time, young Jean got pregnant and was quite happy with the idea of leaving the movies and starting a family. But mother wasn't having it and soon convinced her daughter, or maybe forced her daughter, into an abortion. It was something that Jean would regret for the rest of her life. It wasn't long before her and Chuck were divorced. When it came to mother and daughter, mother always won. Now, Jean's mother, along with Marino Bello, moved in with her. Both Chuck McGrew and her grandfather, both very rich men who were appalled by her film career, refused to support any of them, so the sole income for all three came from Jean's acting. About this time, Howard Hughes was still making Hell's Angels as a silent film. At a certain point, he decided to convert it into a talkie. And his current leading lady was Norwegian, Greta Nissen, who had a very strong accent, so she wouldn't do. She was fired, and on the recommendation from his head cameraman, Arthur Landau, Hughes chose Harlow as her replacement. It was a tough situation for her. She had never really acted like this before, and knew this part was way over her ability. Director James Wales, who was brought in to direct the talking scenes, wasn't any help. When she approached him and asked him how she should play a scene, he said rudely, I can tell you how to be an actress, but I cannot tell you how to be a woman. And her reviews for Hell's Angels were horrible. Many called her one of the worst actresses ever. The New Yorker called her plain awful. I think these reviews were a little too harsh, but that's just me. Yet, even with the bad reviews, many realized that with the way the camera just loved her, she would continue to get work. And the fact that she never wore underwear, not even a bra, helped. And that wasn't something she did to look sexy in films. It's just the way she had always been. In fact, the shy, sweet, friendly young lady was really bothered by her sex symbol image that would develop over time. She never really worked at being provocative. She was one of those people in the film industry that everybody seemed to adore. In 1936, she described herself to reporters this way. There is, first of all, the little matter of my face not matching. I have no chin to speak of. My eyes are set too deep in their sockets. My nose doesn't belong on my face at all. When noses were shuffled and dealt out, I drew someone else's. And my figure is just one of those things. My shoulders are too broad and too square. My hips are too broad. My legs are, well, all right, I suppose, as legs go. You may observe, though, that I never wear short skirts. Jean Harlow, you had a different opinion of yourself than, well, most people on the planet. Anyway, still under contract with Hughes, he kept using her like he did most women. He began loaning her out to other studios to make a large profit for himself. She was in films like The Secret Six with Wallace Berry and Clark Gable, Iron Man with Lee Ayers and Robert Armstrong, and Public Enemy with James Cagney. And for each film, her reviews were devastating. But she was determined that if she was going to be an actress, she would learn how to do it. When her scenes during a film were done and she was told she could leave, she would stick around and carefully observe the other actors to see how they do it. I've also read that she had the amazing ability to memorize scripts. They say she could just look it over once and get it perfect on the first take. Hughes, however, was forcing her to do live performances, something that she hated. I mean, at the time, she was barely an actress and she couldn't sing or dance, there was nothing for her to do during a live performance, yet Hughes was getting $3,500 a week for her appearances and only gave Harlow 200 of that money. But her acting slowly improved, and by the time she did Platinum Blonde in 1931 for Frank Capra and The Redheaded Woman in 1932, she had perfected her fast-paced comic timing and now was starting to get good reviews. She became a star. Now, her short life was filled with scandals, gangsters, a husband who committed suicide, affairs, and much more, and I really don't have time to go into it all here today. Her complete story would take hours to tell. Maybe one day I'll do a show featuring her tale, but right now let's get back to 1933's The Bombshell. It is the story of Lola Burns, a very successful Hollywood actress who becomes disillusioned with her life.
0: Oh, what did you do that for? That something kind of cute was about to happen. I know, but it's six Uh, o'clock.
2: There really isn't much to the plot here. It's more or less the month in the life of an actress. She has to deal with things like a publicist, Space Hanlon, played by Lee Tracy, who keeps planting provocative and untrue stories about her in the paper. Like the real Jean Harlow, she doesn't like her image as a sexy vamp. She also lives in a large home with a maid, butler, personal secretary, and a lot of animals. She has an alcoholic father, played by Frank Morgan, and her lazy brothers, played by Ted Healy. And a recently divorced director, played by Pat O'Brien, has eyes for her, which is a problem because she has a boyfriend named Hugo. And there's Una Merkel as Mac, her personal assistant or secretary, who throws parties at her home while she isn't there and often wears Lola's clothes.
0: Well, some of my friends just dropped in for a little drink. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, where's Pops? I gotta see him right away. He hasn't been here all evening. What's the matter? Did this gang drink up all the bourbon? Just because I'm in your employ is no reason for you to insult my friend. Listen, I gotta find Pops and get $3,000. Is there that much in my checking account? Since I'm not trusted with your financial affairs, I can't say. I don't— Okay, but I notice you're taking pretty good care of my wardrobe.
2: Her life is a mess. Along the way, she has to deal with some crazy fans, like a man who insists that they are married.
0: Oh, ah! my loving wife. Oh, what kind of a rib is this?
1: Rib? Rib? That's it? I'm Adam Uribe. You came from one of my ribs. Oh,
0: I came from Peoria. Oh, please. Who's oh, go away, oh.
2: And in an attempt to run away, she meets Guilford Middleton, played by Frank Atone, who apparently falls in love with her and she for him in bombshell bits of jean harlow's own life was included as she had no problem poking fun at herself at the beginning we see her going to do a reshoot on a real film she had done the year before red dust with clark gable the most famous scene in the film perhaps one of jean's most famous scenes of her career was her bathing in a wooden barrel. In Bombshell, she goes to reshoot that scene, but trouble begins before she ever gets in the barrel.
1: We're already on stage seven, Lola, so snap in with you, please. All
0: right, rope, all right. But have some coffee on the set, will you? You know the new no lines? I'll have them, but don't think I'm gonna get in that rain barrel if the is as cold as it was last time. A polar bear would have died. In it. It's heated,
1: Lola, honest.
2: She said later of that scene, thank goodness it was not necessary for me to get in that rain barrel in Bombshell. I had to pick too many splinters out of myself last time.
1: Hell's Angels, the opening of this picture at Brahman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood was the biggest premiere ever seen anywhere in the world before or since. 500,000 people are lining the street.
0: Gene Harlow. I would like to use this occasion to publicly thank Mr. Hughes for the opportunity he gave me.
2: You know, and I'm speaking as a man here, once you know she never wore underclothes, it's hard not to notice. Anyway, I think my favorite scene in the movie is the opening when she wakes up. I love her exchange with the butler.
0: Oh, good morning, Summers. Who's your brother?
1: Brother, Miss Burns?
0: Sure, the one in San Quentin. Are they gonna let him out?
1: But I only have a married sister, Miss Burns.
0: Oh, that's right. I was thinking of the guy that was here last week.
1: Oh, yes. His name was Summers, I believe. I'm Winters.
0: Mm, He was Summers in your winters. Are butlers always in season?
1: I can't say, Miss.
0: Hey! Well, this isn't orange juice. No, miss. It, 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 it's sauerkraut juice. Well, take it away. It's good it's like dipping your tongue in luck.
1: Well, I'm sorry, miss, but there weren't any oranges.
0: No oranges. This is California, ma'am.
1: Now, during the film,
2: Lola decides she wants to adopt a child, and she hears her press agent say,
1: She's got a fat chance of adopting a kid now. Why should she? You think I want my bombshell turned into a rubber nipple? I get this, you Seminoles. Get this in your lead. Two lovers brawl and Burns' home. You know, jealousy angle, primitive stuff, stone age. Two savages fighting over a gorgeous girl, mad with desire. Use some of the lines you had in those punk novels you've all been writing for a long time. Now
0: listen, well, I'll Ms. tell you burns, what. Burns, how about a statement? I guess Mr. Hanlon can give you all the filth you want.
2: And she breaks down, and I wonder if she used the abortion her mother forced her into to do that scene. If it was as traumatic as most biographers say, I couldn't see how it wouldn't have some influence.
0: You never held a baby in your arms, did you? A little baby that grabbed at you that somebody didn't want and left in a basket someplace. Oh
1: gosh, sugar, I, I didn't know that it meant that much to you, honest.
0: Oh, he was so cute and soft and he smelled so sweet. The little soft spot on top of his head that... I not closed up yet.
2: There's also a scene where she tells everybody off.
0: Oh, get away from me, all of you. You're nothing but a pack of leeches. Leeches? Yes, leeches. At least he was right in one thing. I don't know how I ever expected to bring a baby in here with an old fool for his grandfather that's half drunk all the time.
1: After the way I work to handle your affairs. Now, oh, what
0: about my affairs? Where are they? Why aren't my bills paid? Where does my money go? I never see any other. but you're excited. Well, what are you yourself. mewing about? Don't think I don't know about you and your stealing and the cuts you get from the stores.
1: Oh, listen, sis. And you who
0: never haven't had a job to your name for three years. And bringing her in here like it was a hotel for traveling salesmen. I've only stood it because it's the only home and family I've got. But I'm getting sick of it, do you understand? There's only Loretta and the dogs that ever do a single thing for me. All oh, the rest of you are just out for what you can get. And I'm getting pretty tired of being a golden goose or whatever you call it. <laughs> ha, not a
1: girl, sugar. Don't add a girl me.
0: I never want to see you again as long as I you your worse than all the rest of them. Yeah, but no, Don't uh, I... stuff! Mad with desire, lover's brawl. Is that the way you prove you just more than care for me? Treating me like a strip act in a burlesque show. A glamorous bombshell, shall I? A glorified chump, that's what I've been. Well, I'm through, do you understand? With a business with everybody. You can get another if-girl, a but-girl, or a how-when-and-where-girl. I'm clearing out.
2: I wonder if she was thinking about some of the people in her own life for motivation. The film was directed by Victor Fleming. Fleming lived from 1889 to 1949. He was a director who started out as a cinematographer in silent films in 1915. His greatest triumphs would be in 1939 when he directed both Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. For Gone with the Wind, he would win the Academy Award for Best Director. Now, for those of you out there who suggest films for me to watch, don't even bother asking me to watch Gone with the Wind. It'll never happen. Now let's talk about some of the cast. The press agent is played by Lee Tracy, who lived from 1898
1: to 1968. Me? How can you say such a thing after all I've done? Like a brother. Look, I don't want...
0: film star visits aviator in hospital and stays overnight. What did my husband say? He won't know anything about it. He's
1: in London, isn't he? Listen, Alice, get me Harrigan. I don't London's want you to, Will you get me Harrigan? After all these years, do you think I'd do a thing like that to you? You make me feel like a scunt no matter how much I want publicity. There's a limit someplace. I got some decency left. But I family. wouldn't think
2: it... He was a stage, film, and television actor who often played fast-talking, wisecracking news reporters, press agents, lawyers, and salesmen. He had been a second lieutenant in the final weeks of World War II and planned to be an engineer, but instead decided to go into acting. He was in such films as She Got What She Wanted from 1930, Dinner at Eight from 1933, and The Lemon Drop Kid from 1934. And he's perfectly cast in this film as the sleazy agent who will stop at nothing to promote one of the studio's stars. The Remarkable Frank Morgan plays Lola's father.
1: <laughs> I uh, <clears throat> your career is always paramount in my mind, daughter. I, I That's I, the
0: same shirt and tie you had on yesterday.
1: Oh yes, daughter, the laundry. Oh, the laundry,
0: and, nothing you old rooster? You've been out all night and you're still boiled.
1: I I've been in conference with some racing men. We've been discussing methods of breeding.
0: Don't talk to me about your methods of breeding. I don't want to hear another word.
2: <sighs> Frank lived from 1890 to 1949. He was born Francis Philip Wupperman. He was an American character actor who was best known for his roles in the 1939 Wizard of Oz. And yes, I meant roles. He played four of them. He began in silent films in 1919 and kept on working until his death in 1949 when he died of a heart attack shortly after the filming of Annie Get Your Gun Had Begun. He was in a ton of films and was nominated twice for the Academy Award, Once for Best Actor and once for Best Supporting Actor, although he never won. He's one of those actors that I always enjoy seeing on the screen, and this film is no different. He's just delightful. Frank Atone plays Guilford Middleton, who doesn't really appear till near the end of the film, and Lola falls for him. I'm going to take you away from all that sham and
1: cheapness. I'm going to transplant you. We'll be married, dear heart, and go together to utopia.
0: You mean round the world?
1: round the universe to the moon i'll put the ring of saturn on your finger we'll sleep on venus and the milky way shall be our coverlet
2: he lived from 1905 to 1968 and was an american actor producer and director of stage film and television he was in such films as dancing lady from 33 moulin rouge from 34 mutiny on the bounty from 1935 in which he was nominated for an academy award and many more I think he's fine in this film for what he's asked to do, but I can't say he really stands out or anything like that. Though he does a fine job of playing a bad actor. Pat O'Brien is the director who's in love with Lola.
1: Sure, I just dropped in on my way to work to tell you you can't make a sucker out of me.
0: Why, Jim. I read the
1: papers too, you know. Well, that Barbara of yours can stay in the can as far as I'm concerned. And I call up and cancel that check too.
2: Pat lived from 1899 to 1983, His films include Newt Rockne, All-American from 1940, Angels with Dirty Faces in 1938, and Some Like It Hot from 1959. He was often in films with James Cagney. His last film was The Wonderful Ragtime in 1981. He's another actor who's always enjoyable, and he is here as well. A few other actors in this film are the gorgeous Una Merkel as Lola's personal assistant.
0: Yes, I know it's 6 o'clock and I know she's due on location at 7.30 and I know she's to wear the white dress without the brasier, and I know you'll always be just a second assistant director because you don't think anybody else is capable of thinking for himself or herself.
2: Ted Healy is Lola's brother and you might know Ted as the man who formed the Three Stooges. And when
1: I like a feller, I like him. and comes straight from the shoulder. Do you know you're getting a great piece of goods and sis? She's a cocker. She's all woolen flat on the table.
2: And Louis Beavers as Loretta, the housekeeper.
0: Don't scald me with your steam woman. I knows where the body's buried.
2: Louis is seen in a lot of old Hollywood films, usually playing a maid, a servant, or a slave, which is about the only roles offered to black actors at the time. Now, you know, I'm glad I watched this film and I enjoyed it, but during my research, I found a lot of people were annoyed by the fast-paced dialogue. The
1: horses are coming back. Huh. Sure they are. You'll be behind every one of them with a broom. You yeah. can't
0: talk to my father like that. I won't allow it. But Lola, after all. Who do you think you are talking to a poor, defenseless old man? Well, I'm working. Yeah. i and my set butted up with a lot of loafers. Keep here, brother.
1: father. Who's the head? Who's round, is it? You
0: keep out of it. Stay out of here, Helen.
1: Oh, I don't bother with your department. Now, oh, wait a minute, Jim. Wait a minute. And to
2: be honest, there are moments during this film that I can understand that. And the film really doesn't go anywhere. Lee Tracy starts off as a scumbag and finishes as a scumbag. And in a way, he wins at the end. I think a scene where he finally does the right thing might have helped this film. Maybe a scene where he learns to be, I don't know, human. But it just isn't there. I mean, if near the end he had to choose between a huge publicity opportunity or what is right for Lola's happiness and picks her happiness, that would have been something. But as it turns out, he, along with Lola, her family, her secretary, and everybody else in the film learns nothing and nothing changes. Yet, for some reason, I still enjoyed it.
1: It was very embarrassing to be stopped and questioned by an ordinary reporter.
0: Oh, I know, Hugo. Uh, Do you know Jim Brogan?
1: Yeah, we met once or twice. Glad to know you.
2: Now, this film gets a lowish 76% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, and, you know, it's usually Rotten Tomatoes I turn to for user reviews, but something odd lately I've been finding on Rotten Tomatoes. The names of the people leaving the reviews aren't there anymore. That's sad because I like to use the name of the person who wrote it. So from now on, I'm going to IMDb. Preppy 3 gave it the full 10 stars and he or she wrote Just Superb! Hysterical comedy with Gene Harlow playing Lola Burns, an actress driven crazy by her defunctional family and her overzealous publicity man, Lee Tracy. Very quick, very risque, this was pre-code, and very funny spoof satire on Hollywood, the studio, and the stars. One-liners fly fast and furious, and this film almost never stops for breath. Harlow is incredible. She's sexy, funny, and one hell of an actress. She carries the whole picture on her shoulders. She's matched by Tracy, who plays the role of a slimy publicity man to perfection. Frank Morgan and Fracatone offer great comic support also, especially Tone with his romantic lines. Basically, this is a true classic comedy. It deserves a lot more recognition than it gets. It's also a chance to see Harlow in her prime. She was an incredible actress who died tragically at a very young age. Well, Preppy, I agree, and that's one thing I really didn't talk about, this being a pre haze Code film. But the risqueness, in my mind, is rather mild.
0: Hey, I didn't give you that for a negligee, it's an evening wrap. I know, Miss Lola, but the negligee what you give me got all tore up night before last. Your day off is sure brutal on your lingerie.
2: I thought a film like The Thin Man gets a lot more risque. Anyway... Spuzz Lightyear gave it seven stars, and he had this to say. Fun Gene Harlow movie here, as she plays a starlet pretty much created by the media via sensational headlines and her trying to get away from it all. Gee, how times change. The movie has that 1930s crackle where everybody is super hyper talking all at once and you struggle to catch up with all of it. Even though Harlow is titled a bombshell, I was really impressed by Lee Tracy as her publicist who seems to know Harlow more than she knows herself. It sort of gets monotonous towards the end and the twist really doesn't resolve anything. As a matter of fact, we're right back where we started. But it's still a fun sit though. Well, Smuzz, we'll talk about the end in a minute, and yes, I enjoyed Tracy as well, but there was a lot of people who found him annoying. Just listen to what G. Bill 74877 has to say. He only gave it four stars out of the ten, and this is what he wrote. It's nice to see Jean Harlow in a major role after her breakout performance 1932, but this film is saddled with a weak script and is filled with noisy and annoying performances. Harlow plays a Hollywood starlet and is awfully shrill in the first half of the film, but the biggest problem is Lee Tracy, who plays the slick studio publicist agent. His actions in keeping Harlow in line, his voice, and his smugness all made me want to reach back in time, 83 years, and punch him in the face. And yet he is positioned as the good guy. Ugh. The attempts at comedy are dated, but Tracy manipulating it so Harlow can't adopt a child because he believes she couldn't do that and have a career is just sickening, not clever. See, spuzz G. Bill didn't appreciate Tracy. And I do agree, I didn't like that part about adopting a baby. But here, to all you inventors out there, you know, the Dr. Emmett Browns or H. George Wells, if you invent a time machine, keep it out of the hands of G. Bill. I just don't want to see Tracy get punched in the face for performing in a film that he himself didn't write. Celluloid Time Machine 15 only gave it one little star, and he or she really had nothing good to say about the film. Nasty, loud, and unfunny. Considering that this has a relatively high rating, I can only assume that I watched a different film or that the people who have commented on it are die-hard Harlow devotees. As someone who is not a Harlow fan, maybe my opinion is a little less biased. So my unbiased review of this is... This film is horrible, the story's horrible, she is horrible in it, and indeed everyone is horrible in it. Unless someone nails your legs to a chair in front of a TV, there's no reason to watch this. So, Celluloid Time Machine, I only like this film because I'm a fan of Gene Harlow, huh? Well, poor me. I've been duped into liking this, fooled by Hollywood into enjoying a bad film because of a young star. Thanks for setting me straight. Now give me a second. I'm going to watch it again and try not to be a fan of Gene Harlow. There, watched it again and nope, I still liked it. Now a little more about Jean Harlow. You know, although she was a natural blonde, she didn't have blonde hair like in the films. That was done with a mixture of ammonia, Clorox bleach, and Lux soap flakes, a process that weakened and damaged her naturally ash blonde hair. And from what I hear, it was a very painful process. But, and I'll repeat, but it had nothing to do with her death. She was married three times and three times divorced. In 1934, Harlow met William Powell, another MGM star, and quickly fell in love. It was never made public because of the age difference. Some have suggested that Harlow was always looking for a father figure, and Powell may have been that figure. She was making a film in 1937 called Saratoga when she began looking sicker and sicker. She had fatigue and nausea, fluid retention, and abdominal pain. Oddly, on May 29, 1937, she was supposed to film a scene in which she had a fever, but was too sick to do so. She called William Powell, who left the film he was making, and rushed over to take her home. She never returned to work. Now, it's a common legend that her mother refused to get her medical attention due to the fact she was a Christian scientist, but that's not true at all. She was under constant medical attention. On June 6, 1937, she was taken to the Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles where she slipped into a coma. And the next day at 11.37 a.m., Harlow died in the hospital at the young age of 26. It is believed the cause of her death was kidney failure which is thought to have begun when she was 15, due to a case of scarlet fever. And it turns out it didn't matter if she had medical attention or not. There was nothing they could have done to save her. The studio first planned on finishing the film she was making, Saratoga, by replacing her with another actress and refilming all her scenes. There was a public outcry that convinced the studio to finish her last film with her in it, So they used doubles for the scenes not yet filmed, and if you watch the films, it's pretty obvious. The film became MGM's most successful film of the year, as well as the highest grossing film of Jean Harlow's career. It is said both her mother and William Powell never got over her death. She was interned in the great mausoleum at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale in a private room in which William Powell bought for twenty-five thousand dollars, which is close to a half million in today's money. She was laid to rest in the gown she wore and libeled Lady, and in her hand she had a white gardenia along with a note that Powell had written that said, Good night, my dearest darling. The inscription on her crypt just reads simply, our baby. Oh,
1: Never in your life have you seen such a combination of happy, sad, good, bad, rock'em, sock'em action. When you walk out, you wonder what you've seen because never has there been a motion picture like this. Monster A-Go-Go with a genuine 10-foot-tall monster to give you the whim-whams. Monster A-Go-Go, with astronauts and space capsules and pretty girls and cosmic radiation and pretty girls and screams and pretty girls. There's something for everyone in the picture they're all talking about, the picture with Go, Monster A-Go-Go. A
2: little bit before I go, you know, Jean Harlow was loved, not just by the public, but almost everyone who worked with her. Joe Newman, an MGM assistant director, said this of when it was announced that she had died. The whole lot was stunned. It was a terrific blow to everyone on the lot, to everyone who knew her and everyone who worked with her. And Hollywood screenwriter Harry Ruskin said The day baby died, there wasn't one sound in the MGM commissary for three hours. Not one goddamn sound. I think that's what surprised me more than anything else while researching this, just how beloved she was by everyone who knew her. I don't think I read one negative comment about her by anyone who knew her. And I think that's rare, right? Especially in Hollywood. You know, if you've got any thoughts about Jean Harlow, the film Bombshell, or anything connected with this film, please send me an email. In fact, send me an email for any reason. I'm at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. You can use our Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. And our Twitter page. It's at celluloid underscore days. Next week, we're going to go back into the world of Mystery Science Theater 3000 with their episode 421, Monster Agogo, the 1965 classic made and starring people you've probably never heard of. Except maybe Herschel Gordon-Lewis, who may or may not have directed parts of the film. Please join us, won't you? Now before I leave, one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thanks for listening, take care, and I'll be back next Monday.
1: Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkies. What about the twinkle? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The
0: cuckoo clock. Two multipass. Yeah.
1: The, uh, multipass. You know it's multipass. You're
0: stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again.
1: The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano?
0: I can. And sing at the same time. Let's